and it'll be 15 through 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and splitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his clothes back on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We're going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for about a year, and we've, we've worked our way now to the crucifixion, to the point of the story where we see Jesus executed on a cross in our place to pay for our sins and to make the world right again. And so, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 15. Turn to Mark chapter 15, and, and as we work through our text for this morning, I want you to consider, I want you to consider the weight, and I want you to consider the gravity of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross has sort of become like the, the image or, or logo of the Christian faith, right? Like it's almost like ubiquitous for us. We see a lot of crosses. We see them everywhere. But we don't hear a lot about the cross. Does that make sense? Like we see the cross a lot, but we don't hear a lot about the cross. So, so what ends up happening is we assume too much and understand too little when it comes to the cross of Jesus. But your eternal destiny hangs on how you understand and how you respond to, and if you're a believer, what happens when you revisit the truths that are in this text. And so whatever assumptions it is that you have about Jesus and about his, his cross, like know that nothing is more important than what you believe about his cross and why he died. And so... We're going to look at three aspects of the cross this morning in this text. First, we're going to look at what the cross reveals about our nature. What does the cross reveal about our nature, our, our human nature? Secondly, what does the cross reveal about his nature, about Christ's nature? And lastly, we're going to look at how the cross can now make us new. 
Give us the renewal, the transformation that we need. So point number one, what the cross reveals about our nature, about our nature. Now we're going to see the worst. We're going to see the worst of human nature in these verses. So uh, if, if you remember from last week, what happened is Pilate, who's sort of the, the, the governor who works for Rome at the time in this region. He, has, he presides over Jerusalem, which is where Jesus is when he gets arrested and hung on a cross. And Pilate, this governor, hands Jesus over in our last passage over to his executioners. The people are crying out, crucify him. And so Pilate hands Jesus over to the executioners to be crucified. And and that's where we're at in verse 16. Read with me. It says, The soldiers led him away, led Jesus away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, which is where the execution guards slept. And they called together the whole battalion. Verse 17, Then they clothed him, they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and, and kneeling down in, in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, when they mocked Jesus, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. So before Jesus actually goes on the road to be crucified, they they take him away. They sort of corner him in what's called the governor's headquarters, which, as you can imagine, is not a friendly place. This is where the execution guards slept. This was like their barracks. So this is the place where like only their rules apply. And they make sure before taking him to be crucified that they're going to take him to their home court. They're going to take him to their barracks to do what they will with him. And what do they do? They mock him. They deride him, it says. And, And they've already beaten his body at this point. They've already beaten down his body, but now their goal is to cripple his spirit. So you need to picture the condition Jesus is in at this point when they're mocking him. You got to remember, he's exhausted, right? He's exhausted. He was up in the middle of the night praying with his disciples when he was arrested. That just happened. I mean, we talked about that a few weeks ago, but that just happened a few hours before our text. So he's exhausted. He's also bloodied up from getting blindfolded and slugged in the face again and again and again. And they, they, keep, they kept beating him saying, all right, you're a prophet. Tell us who hit you, right? They've already mocked him in that way. And then verse 15, before our passage uh, last week, we, we ended where it says that Pilate had scourged him, had flogged him, had scourged him. Now, we didn't get into this at the end of our sermon last week because we didn't have time, but I I want you to understand what it means to be scourged, what it means to be flogged, as other Gospels say. Scourging was this barbaric act where they'd they'd strip a man down so that his his whole backside was exposed, and then two executioners would stand on either side of him. And what they did is they'd take this device, 
They take this device, grab it in their, their hands, and I, I want you, to, I want you to, 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 to picture it, where they, they, they take this device and they'd whip him over and over and over and over again with this device called, it's called a flagrum. Flagrum, it's this nasty device with a wooden handle and long straps of leather attached to it. And at different points of the way, on that long strip of leather, you had pieces of metal or sometimes bone attached to it. And at the very end of each strap was a, a, a little metal ball with these tiny hooks that would sort of dig into the flesh when a person gets ripped or whipped. And then when they pull back the whip, their, their, their flesh would tear apart. I mean, some men... Some men died just from the scourging. Some men died just from getting flogged by one of these. Many of those who weren't crucified, like many, 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 many guys that would, 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 uh, who were being punished by the government, who would get scourged in this way, who would get flogged in this way, but, but, but wouldn't go on to get crucified. A lot of, a lot of guys in that place, even though, even though they wouldn't, be sent off to get crucified, they would still be emotionally and spiritually broken down by getting scourged. It's like a soldier who gets, who gets captured and tortured by the enemy and then suffers PTSD from it from that point on and is just never the same again. Traumatic stress to the body. Traumatic stress to the mind, to the heart. And Jesus, he, he takes this. Jesus takes this. He absorbs the blows. Jesus takes this and his body starts to go into absolute shock. And he's reduced to nothing more than a bloody slab of meat. And you know what? This, this brutality was predicted in by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, where in Isaiah 52 we read that, where it says that his appearance, speaking of Jesus, his appearance would be so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, he's just not even recognizable. If his mother was present, if his mother walked up at this point, if she saw him at this point, she wouldn't even recognize him. And it's at that moment, at this moment when he's deprived of sleep, when he's drained of energy, when he's dizzy and in shock, when he's dripping in his own blood, that verse 17 says they, they mock him by draping a purple robe over his shoulders. Mocking like a royal robe. And they press down a, a crown of thorns into his, into his scalp. And they start to mock him more, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. You call yourself the King of the Jews? We worship you, right? There's your crown, there's your robe. And they continue in verse 19 to, to beat him. And they, in mocking him, they kneel before him, worshiping him in mockery. 
And again, their goal is not just to destroy his body at this point, but to destroy his spirit, to remove him of all dignity. Verse 20 says, at this point, they led him out to crucify him. Now, at this point, when, when, when someone gets led off from here to be crucified, uh, a prisoner would be required to carry sort of his own crossbeam. Right? The, 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 the cross beam is the horizontal part of the cross. Right? Like, what would happen is they would, they would take this cross beam, it would be strapped to their back, and, and you know, like the vertical part of the cross would already be at the place of crucifixion. And what would happen is from the point of the courts to the point where the vertical poles were just, just uh, up, uh, like erected from the ground, like they, the, 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 uh, the prisoner would be required to, to carry the horizontal cross beam from one point to the other. And this, this is a piece of thick wood that weighed usually around 100 pounds. 100 pounds. Now, the, these cross beams were usually reused, so likely... Jesus' crossbeam was covered in the tears and the blood of other men. Can you imagine having to endure what Jesus has, has already endured up to this point? And then to have a 100-pound wooden beam of death transferred onto your back. Your back, which is shredded on your frail, shaking body. Can you imagine having to endure what Jesus had to endure up to this point and then having 100 pounds of wood transferred onto your back? Open wounds, onto your open wounds. I mean, Jesus is so physically weak at this point that he can't even carry his own crossbeam. He can't carry that piece of wood because uh, he has too great a loss of blood and too great an intensity of pain to, to continue on. And so in verse 21, it says that they compel a guy, which is a nice way of saying they made him. They compel a guy to carry the cross, the cross beam for him. Read verse 21. It says they, they compelled a passerby named Simon of Cyrene who is coming in from the country. So likely this was a Jewish guy pilgrimaging to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. He's just walking by while they're mocking Jesus, prodding at him as he climbs up the hill with this cross beam falling down over and over and over again. Simon Cyrene is walking by, and they just pick him at random. Hey, you, you don't look busy. And they call out to him. They compel a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, and it says he's the father of Alexander and Rufus, and they have him carry his cross. They have him carry Jesus' cross. Now, this, this little side note here is fascinating. I want you to notice the unusual amount of detail that we're given to some random dude they picked up on the side of the road. Look at the detail. They call him Simon of Cyrene. They tells where he's from, who's coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, why this side note about Simon's background? It's like when you're reading like a, a peer-reviewed journal. Um, like, like this week, I, I actually saw this, uh, it, was, it was crazy. There's this actually peer-reviewed science journal 
uh, that uh, had reported about just the miraculous healing of a person uh, just through, through prayer. They use like all these scientific words to try and ex- explain it. It says through proximal intercessory prayer, right? Happening just down the hall in the hospital. It's a medical journal, a science journal. Uh, talking about it. and it's got all these footnotes and it has the name of the hospital the doctors that were and the nurses that were in charge in charge what what the diagnosis was and 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 you, and you can check all 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 all, all of these the, check the links like check all the footnotes and see when you're reading a peer reviewed journal like this you 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 check the footnote references so you can see how truthful it is and so by naming Simon's background and family, what Mark was doing was putting a footnote in this story. He's saying, look, if you want, you can go to Cyrene out in the country, look up Alexander and Rufus, which were uncommon names at the time, like really uncommon names at the time. And so he says, look, go to Cyrene, go to the country, look up Alexander and Rufus. This is their father. Ask them about it. Don't take my word for it. This is Mark saying, don't take my word for it. Go ahead and check the facts. Check the facts. You see, this little side note reminds us that the Christian narrative, the gospel story, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus are historical events. God enters into human history to save us. To save us. And Mark, just like Paul does later, and just like other gospel writers and many Christians in the first century, when they're writing, they keep saying, look, if you don't, don't take my word for it, do your homework. Dig into it. Check on these facts. Talk to these people. Look up these eyewitnesses. Here's where they live. You see, some people come uh, look at Christianity from the outside, and they have this this running assumption that, you know, uh, in order to be a Christian, you have to sort of check your mind at the door, right? Like we're this this post sort of postmodern world. Like if you want to believe in a in a man named Jesus who who lived, died, and rose then you have to leave a certain amount of reason at the door. But man, if you actually read the Bible, like Paul, Mark right here, they're saying, look, don't take my word for it. Look these people up. This isn't just myth. This is history. And read on in verse 22. It says they brought him, they brought Jesus now. With Simon Cyrene's help, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, which is a cryptic way of saying, hey, look, you go here to die. No survivors make it back from this mountain. Verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, what's with that? What's with this wine myrrh cocktail that they offer him that he doesn't take? You see, wine and myrrh, mixed together in, the, in, in this way, created sort of like this narcotic that could be used to soften the pain. Now, clearly, Jesus is in pain, right? So why doesn't he take it? Why doesn't he drink this drug offered to him? Is he like some straight-edge teetotaler, right? No, we know he's not. 
because he drank wine with his disciples to the point where he was accused of being a drunkard, even though he wasn't because of how much he enjoyed drinking wine with his disciples. His first miracle was to provide the best wine at a wedding in Cana. Then why abstain from this liquid pain reliever at the time that Jesus could probably use it most? You see, Jesus didn't take it because he didn't want to be in any form of sedation for two reasons. One, he wanted to have all his faculties in order so that he could serve the people around him. We know in the gospel of, of uh, it's either Luke or John that he has a conversation with one of the other people hanging on a cross. Jesus is sharing the gospel with him, extending forgiveness to him. We know that in a few minutes from one of the other gospels as well, that his Jesus's mother does show up and she's, she's weeping, she's crying. And some of the other disciples have, have made it there. And Jesus comforts his mother from the cross using whatever energy he can muster up to speak to her and comfort her and saying, mother, this, this disciple of mine, John, he'll take care of you. And he tells John, John, this is my mother. Take, take care of her now. Treat her like your own mother. You see, Jesus wanted to be available even to his last dying breath to serve and to minister to the people around him. But, but more importantly, more importantly, Jesus did not want to be sedated because he needed in every sense and fiber of his being to taste death. Jesus the Son of God, the author of life, needed to taste death, what it means to die. Why did he need to taste death? Why did he need to taste it in such a horrific way? Why was it important for the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, to go to the cross? Like, why couldn't he, he just die in his sleep? Why did he have to suffer in this way? Why did he have to get mocked and beaten and derided and torn apart and crushed not just in bones but in spirit? Why did he have to endure all of this and taste death to the very end? It's because of the seriousness, the weight, the gravity of our sins. Jesus suffered a horrific death, nothing short of horrifying. He suffered a horrific death to pay for our horrific sin nature. To pay for our sins. Look at how, how the apostle Peter describes it in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, Christ, Christ also suffered Christ suffered once for what? For sins. The righteous, the innocent, for the unrighteous, the guilty, that he might bring us to God. He suffered the brutal, the most brutal of all sufferings, not just physically ravaged, but he was emotionally ravaged. He was spiritually ravaged, especially when the father turns his face away, which we read about next week. 
Why was, why was he ravaged in this, this, this complete, holistic sense? It was for our sins. He suffered once for sins. You see, that's what you need to know about our nature. This is what the cross reveals. That's what it teaches us about our human nature. The cross teaches us in its brutality, in its horrifying nature. It teaches us that our nature is sinful. And we are in need of a Savior. He's the righteous suffering in the place of the unrighteous, which is you and me, so that he could bring us back to God, so that he can bring us back to the good life that we long for, communion with God, unadulterated communion with each other. You see, culture, culture says, let's get rid of this idea of sin, Right? Like sin sound, that the whole concept of sin, according to culture, is like oppressive. Sin is too oppressive. It's an old, ancient idea. It's an archaic idea. But we need to grasp the weight and gravity of our sin. That's what the brutality of the cross reveals for us. That sin at its most fundamental level needs to be dealt with, with such brutality. Because sin is a rebellious rejection of God's authority. I want you to look at the way David F. Wells articulates this when he says, Sin, biblically speaking, is not only the absence of good, but it also entails our active opposition to God. It is then the defiance of his authority, the rejection of his truth, the challenge to his sovereignty in which we set ourselves up in life to live the way that we want to live. You see, sin at its most fundamental sort of core level is our natural bent. Apart from God's grace, our natural bent to, to kick God off his throne and place ourselves on that throne instead. You see, with the doctrine of sin, what we're talking about is our depraved brokenness in our hearts and the way that it breaks the world. Our heart posture towards God is what breaks the creator-creation relationship that has reverberated throughout creation. It's pervasive. Not only is our world broken, but our minds are broken. The way that we think and reason is broken. Our desires are broken. Our affections are broken. Things are not as they were intended to be. Like the early church father said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Sin made it so that we are not what we were intended to be. Now, this isn't great news, right? Like up until this point, what was revealed by the cross is not great news. This is really bad news for us. But the cross of Jesus also brings good news to reverse this bad news, which leads us now to our second point, what the cross reveals about Christ's nature. What the cross reveals about Christ's nature. Read verse 24 through 32 with me. 
We're going to read the rest of our passage, and I want you to see, I want you to picture the imagery here. I want you to picture this scene and see how the mockery just intensifies more and more and more. Verse 24, it says, They crucified him, they crucified Jesus, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what he should take. So as Jesus is now hanging on the cross, they strip him, and a poker game breaks out beneath him. And it was the third hour, verse 25 says, when they crucified him. That was the point where they hoist his horizontal crossbeam onto the lifted up vertical beam and nail his, 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 it's the point that his hands were nailed into that beam. Verse 26, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews in mockery. Verse 27, and with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, shaking their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? If you remember, that's what they accused him of saying, that he would destroy the Jewish temple. And they say, you who said this, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Save yourself. Verse 31, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, yet he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those even who were crucified with him also reviled him. Jesus, at every angle, at every point, every minute in these that passes by in these verses is surrounded by mockers. Surrounded by people who are just letting him have it with their words. Mark highlights, the gospel of Mark highlights the mocking more than any other gospel. He points out that he's mocked by the soldiers. He continues to be mocked by the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He's mocked by those that are casually passing by. They're shaking their heads at him, which points out to us that his popularity has changed. I mean, all these people that were passing by in, in, in the community, were this, many of them were the same people that were celebrating him on Palm Sunday when he rode into Jerusalem the week before. You see, for a lot of us, it's really convenient to worship Jesus on the outside when everyone else is doing it, when it's convenient to, right? We'll put our worship on display. We'll come up with the crowd on the street. We'll lay the palm branches before his feet when everyone else is doing it. But all these people, just like Peter, his popularity with them has changed. And now they're shaking their heads at him to the point where he's even mocked by the two thieves occupying the crosses next to him. And now the irony, the irony in their mocking at the cross is that there are actual profound nuggets of truth revealed in their mockery. Their mockery at the cross actually reveals profound, beautiful gospel nuggets of truth. In the words that they say, first they call out to him, king of the Jews. When they refer to him as king of the Jews, they're mocking him as by, because every, to every onlooker, he would look at this point as anything but a king. 
He would look like anything but a king. Remember, he's beaten. His body's bruised up. His flesh is torn. He's bloodied up. He's hanging on a cross that he was too weak to carry himself. And above his head, it says, King of the Jews. Every witness walking by will get a kick out of that. This is a king? But mere human observation is not enough at the foot of this cross. You need spiritual eyes to see what's really going on. To see that this truly is a king. And he's not just the king of the Jews, but he's the king of the world. And it's actually through this cross, it's actually through this suffering that this king will reign. This is King Jesus' coronation. This is the point, the day, and the time that, that he proves what kind of king he is in human history. This is the moment of his kingship. That's the irony here. They're mocking him, calling him king of the Jews, but what they don't realize is that this is the moment in history that his true kingly role is revealed, that he's not just any king. He's the king of the Jews, God's Old Testament people, and he's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the world. The king of all kings. He's the savior king. He's the king who suffers. The king of the cross. This king doesn't sit on a throne. He gave up that throne. He gave up that throne and he exchanged it. First for a cradle. And now for a cross. Why? Because this is how much he loves sinners. This is how much he loves his people. This is how much he loves his elect. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you can say, this is how much he loves me. He's the king of the cross. And he's come to die for them the ones mocking him. The Apostle Paul breaks down the coronation of Jesus, how, how this is the moment that his kingship is revealed. The Apostle Paul reveals this to us in Philippians chapter 2. Probably one of the most beautiful gospel passages in all the New Testament, in Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11. I want you to read this with me. This is a passage of really like theology on Jesus as king. Up to now in the Gospel of Mark, we've been reading a lot of, of narrative, right? Like the, the, the Bible has different genres of scripture. Some are narrative and story and history like the Gospels. In this passage, we have a theological truth revealed in verse chapter 2, verse 6. It says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of what? To the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, verse 9 says, in other words, because of this, because of him coming as a man, because of his obedience to the point of death, because of his death on a cross, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, they mocked Jesus as the king of the Jews, but they had no idea. They had no idea how right they were. The cross reveals to us, it doesn't just reveal to us, the cross confirms to us that he's the greatest king of all. He's the savior king that we've all longed for. And then in verse 29, it says their their mocking reveals another great truth. Another great truth about Jesus in the temple. You know, they're shaking their heads, they're mocking him, and they're saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, why don't you save yourself and come down from the cross? You see, they accused him before of saying that he would destroy the temple. And so they're mocking him saying, like, you're a fraud. You said you'd destroy the temple, but look at the temple in all its beauty, in all its strength, how it's fortified, how it's untouched. Yet look at you. Look at your body there on that cross. It's over. But what they didn't realize is that when Jesus said he would raise the temple in three days, he was using a metaphor for his body as a temple. One, one of the Gospels that makes that point even, it says that they didn't realize that he was talking about his body. And so Jesus was saying, look, if you destroy my body, I'll raise it up in three days. This is another thing where, where those with just mere human eyes don't see what the cross wants us to see. But those with spiritual eyes who have spiritual eyes to see the true nature of the cross of Jesus, they saw that the Lord who is hanging there fulfills everything that the temple prefigured. That through his death, there's no more need for temple sacrifices. That through his death, God and sinner are reconciled. You see, on the cross, Jesus rebuilds the whole idea of the Old Testament temple on himself. And if you're familiar with the purpose of the Old Testament temple, that's where God's presence dwelled. That's where a priest would come on behalf of the people and serve as a mediator so that the people could experience the presence of God in the temple. But Jesus, through the cross, is saying, now the presence of God is not found in a place. Now the presence of God is found in a person, is found in me. That's what the cross reveals to us. So now that means if you have faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter if you live in Jerusalem or not. It doesn't matter if you visit the temple or not. It doesn't matter if you're in Israel or not. If you're a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter if your family is Jewish or not. If you place your faith in Jesus, then you're part of his forever family by faith alone. And the presence of God is with you, with you, with you by his spirit. So the cross reveals much about Jesus to us.
doesn't it? Reveals that he's a king unlike any other king, a king who lays down his life for his people. And it reveals that he replaces the old temple sacrifice system. Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He's the priest to end the priesthood who brings the presence of God to us. It leads us now to our third and final point, which is how the cross makes us new. You see, when you see what the cross reveals about our, our nasty human nature, and also what the cross reveals about Jesus's unique godly nature, that reality will change you. It'll make you new. That reality saves and reorients our hearts. That reality takes those who are separated from God and it brings us back to him. It renews our world and our hearts. Every single one of us is searching to be made new. Every single one of us is searching for renewal to fix the brokenness that we sense in the world and in our hearts. You see, first century Rome, they tried to remedy itself by expanding their dominion. First century Jews, they tried to remedy themselves with their religious systems. Academics today do it through wisdom. Artists do it by creating beauty. Politicians do it through power. Everyone has a religion. Everyone has a gospel story, a good news story that answers the big questions of life. Like, if only if I have this, if only if I achieve this, if only if I do this, then that will take care of the sin and brokenness that I sense in my heart and out in the world. Everyone is trying in some way, shape, form, or fashion to save themselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with wisdom. There's nothing wrong with art and beauty, but those things won't save you. They won't save you. The good news is that even though we can't save ourselves, God comes down in the person of Jesus and does it for us, accomplishes it for us. You want to know why Jesus had to be so reviled? You want to know why he had to be so defiled? You want to know why he had to be mocked and abused the way that he was? Why the son of God had to be so despised at the hour of his death? So that we could feel, we could sense, we can see and taste and feel the weight of what he did for us. And also so that we can feel the weight of how awful we are to him. You see, that's how the cross makes us new. It gives us a new lens for ourselves and the world. It doesn't just give us new life at the point of conversion. But with that new life, it gives us a new worldview, a new lens through which we see the world. The cross helps us get real with ourselves. It helps us to get real with ourselves about the sin that exists in our own hearts and how it's sin that cannot be ignored. It has to be acknowledged. You see, the cross reminds us both that you are a lot worse than you think, but it also reminds us that you are so incredibly loved and worth dying for. 
The cross of Christ confronts us with the question, where is it that you need to believe the gospel? Where is it that you need the cross to, 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 to change your view? on yourself and the world. Like some of you, some of you have a high view of God's love. Amen to that, right? You have a high view of God's love, but you have a low view of your sin. We talked about this in our home groups, which just launched a couple weeks ago. A high view of God's love, but a low view of your sin. And so like you're content living for Jesus like one hour on a Sunday while rebelling against him every other hour of the week. The brutality of the cross should be a reminder to you that sin is nasty and so pervasive that it required a brutal death from our Savior God. Or maybe, maybe you're the kind of person that walks around in shame and guilt all the time. Maybe you have a big view of your sin, but you have too small a view of God's love. And if that's you, then let the cross be a reminder to you that even though like your sin and all your crap is fully known by God, you are still fully loved in Jesus. He doesn't leave you in despair. He doesn't leave you down in the muck, in the mire. He delivers you from it. Francis Spufford, this, this uh, English novelist, uh, is contemporary novelist who, who came to faith later in life. Uh, he says, the essential background to the cross, therefore, is a balanced understanding of the gravity of sin and the majesty of God. If we diminish either, then we thereby diminish the cross. Where do you need to believe the good news of the cross this morning? What area do you need to believe the gospel in? Do you see what the cross does? The cross humbles you. It humbles you, but it also gives you value and worth. And the cross compels you on a mission to invite others to experience the same. Remember when we talked about the Old Testament temple, how that's where the presence of God dwelt? Now, there was this priest in the temple whose, whose goal was to be a mediator between God with the sacrifices and the people so they could experience uh, uh, the presence of God and a relationship of God through this, this priest as their representative. The Bible tells us that Jesus is our new high priest. And not only is he our new high priest that we have the presence of God through faith in him, but, but he also calls all those who are followers of him a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. And so now as his royal priest, we get to invite others to know King Jesus too. We get to invite others to know the king who is the lion and the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're his ambassadors. As Oscar said earlier, we, during our prayer time, like we have a mission now of reconciliation. Did you know that the message of the cross is the primary message of the Bible? It's the primary message of the Bible is the cross. The primary message of the gospel is not 
just that we're sinners. The primary message of the Bible is not just that we are loved. The primary message of the Bible is the cross where both of those meet. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's saying of all the things that you could possibly know, of all the books of the Bible, of all the doctrines, of all the blogs and books and quotes and sermons and podcasts and lectures, of anything that you've ever learned, you know what's most important? Of first importance? He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That is the message of the Bible. All 66 books, Old Testament and New Testament, Old Covenant and New Covenant, points to this cross. The most important thing you need to know is that you're a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. And the cross of Christ is your only hope. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.